We've just come off a season where we have both remembered and celebrated our belief that at a point in human history, the God of the universe took on human flesh to become the Savior of the world. Now, if you didn't know the story, wouldn't you think that the category of people most likely to celebrate and receive God in the flesh would be the religious crowd. I mean, these are the people that supposedly love and serve God. Wouldn't they be the people most likely to enthusiastically receive God when he became flesh and walked on the earth? Yet we know it was the polar opposite. It was the religious crowd that were the primary antagonists when God took on flesh and walked on this earth. There's such a tendency to believe as long as it's religion, it gets us to God. When the truth that Jesus is trying to help us understand is it's actually religion that becomes the barrier to experiencing a meaningful relationship with God. That's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to John chapter 5. We're back in the Gospel of John chapter 5. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Took a little time off for the Christmas break. Last we were in John's Gospel, we kind of ended in a weird place, halfway through chapter 5. It's just kind of the way it worked. At the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who's either been sick or paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. And he very intentionally heals him on the Sabbath in order to expose the fallacies of the thinking of the religious leaders. So now the religious leaders, they are very upset. As a matter of fact, they are so upset, they are plotting to kill him. Now again, process this. You're talking about the religious leaders of the day. They are now so opposed to God in the flesh that they are plotting to kill him. There's two primary charges. One is you are claiming to be God. The second is you broke the Sabbath. You broke our rules, their interpretation of the Sabbath, and you must die. Jesus now begins to put forth his defense. And his defense is not a denial of the charges, but actually an embracing of the charges. He is claiming 
to be God. And that is the basis by which he can work on the Sabbath. So like in a courtroom, Jesus presents five witnesses for his defense. We pick it up in verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, what Jesus is not saying that his testimony is false, but rather it's the idea that if he claims to be God, then there should be some evidence of that. Anyone could claim to be God. But probably more than that, the word true could be translated admissible. In a Jewish court, any charge required two to three witnesses. And so Jesus is claiming to be God, and he's saying, just my word alone would not be admissible, so now he's going to present witnesses to affirm his claim. Verse 32, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, I think verse 32 is referencing the Father, and we'll come back to the Father in just a couple of minutes. But I think it is the transition or the hinge into the first witness. The first witness is John the Baptist. Verse 33, you have sent to John... And he has testified to the truth. Now, if you were here at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of John, this hopefully sounds familiar. In John chapter 1, we were told that the religious leaders sent a delegation to John the Baptist to find out who he was and what he was doing. That's where they had the classic conversation where John said, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just here as a voice to announce that the Messiah has come. The Pharisees specifically sent a delegation asking him if he's not the Christ or the prophet or Elijah, who exactly gave him authority to do what he's doing? John was getting a significant following. He was creating quite a stir, and he was baptizing Jews. Now, baptism was not unusual in the first century, but it was a baptism of Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. John was baptizing Jews in a baptism of repentance. So there's kind of this offense. Who exactly gave you the authority to do that? And what do you think you're doing baptizing Jews? And what are they repenting of? But the whole movement of John was repenting of not only their sin, but their own self-righteousness to prepare them to receive the Savior. So that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 33. His first witness is John the Baptist. And he's saying, John the Baptist already told you who I am 
and why I'm here. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 34, But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying that it's not just because John says he's God, but rather his credentials ultimately come from the Father. But the reason he's going back to John the Baptist is he wants them to listen. John told them what they needed to hear. He wants them to accept it, to repent, and to be saved. So he's saying, my first witness is John the Baptist. And I want to think, you to think about what he said, because I really want you to be saved. Verse 35, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now we have to guess there just a little bit what he means by that. I think it's highly likely he's simply referring to the fact that probably initially the religious leaders were excited to hear that possibly the Messiah had come. In their mind, he was going to overthrow Rome and then they would be in charge. So initially there was a level of excitement. But when they began to realize that that's not what Jesus was going to do, they weren't so interested. Jesus is now kind of disrupting their system. Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. And so now they're not so happy with it. The rejection of witness number one reminds me of a lot of people in our culture who would be okay with Jesus. I'm okay with Jesus. I like Christmas. I like Easter. I'm fine with Jesus. I go and visit Jesus once a week at church. But for the most part, I'd like Jesus to stay at church. I'm not really interested in someone who's going to cramp my style. I'm not interested in someone who's going to expose my sin. I'm not really interested in repentance and confession. I'm not really interested in counting the cost. I'm not interested in facing my sins and my need for a Savior. I'd like Jesus on my terms. Kind of like him to stay at church. If I need you, I'll call you. Our culture is full of people like that. They reject the message of John the Baptist. Witness number one, I don't think so. Witness number two, verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So witness number two would be his works. John makes the claim at the beginning of his gospel, this is actually God in the flesh. But neither Jesus nor John are asking people to just simply believe that. But rather the whole gospel is full of evidence to support that claim. 
That's even what John writes. These things are written that you might believe. So Jesus says, the second witness comes from me and my works, what John refers to as signs. So, so far, we've had Jesus turn the water to wine. We've had Jesus heal the Roman official's son in Capernaum. And now we've had Jesus heal the man who had been sick or paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. Now, these are not hidden, secret, maybe, maybe not miracles. These are clear, uh, miraculous moments. As a matter of fact, even the Pharisees, his antagonists, aren't denying that. That's the problem. His miracles are creating quite a stir. They can't deny them. Clearly, they happen. So the attack is, but you broke the rules. You can't do that. Now stop and think about this. If someone among you is actually doing miracles and claiming to be God, wouldn't you at some point maybe take a few steps back and wonder, who is this man? And yet there's going to be this growing tension where these religious leaders are determined not to believe. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is they refuse to believe. They're running the show. They're in charge. Jesus is infringing on their territory. And he must be stopped. Those who reject witness number two would be those in our culture who always say they want proof, they want evidence, but there will never be enough evidence. There's plenty of evidence and resources for those who are genuinely seeking But there are people where it will never be enough because the issue is not evidence. The issue is their heart. They just simply don't want to believe. Several years ago, I was listening to an interview with Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book, The God Delusion. And the question was asked of him, what if when you die, There is a God, and you find yourself standing before this God, what are you going to say? Richard Dawkins got kind of a smile on his face, and he said, I'll just ask him, why did you make yourself so hard to find? To which I would say, that is utterly ridiculous. How can you miss him? Romans 1 says, just look around you. Nobody can say there is no God. The evidence is everywhere. It isn't a lack of evidence. It's just simply a determination to not believe no matter what. Witness number two? I don't think so. Witness number three? 
is the Father. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. So I think he's referring to the Father in verse 32. And I think that's what transitions into the discussion about John the Baptist. Because we remember at the baptism of Jesus, there was a voice that came out of the heavens that declared Jesus to be God's Son. John told us there was also a dove that came out of the heavens, landed on Jesus, and remained. And he had been told that would be the sign. So part of the witness of the Father was a voice from heaven. This will happen again in chapter 12. But I think Jesus is saying more than that. John told us at the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is the creator God who took on human flesh. And then chapter 1, verse 18, and he came to exegete to reveal the Father to us. This comes up again later in the upper room. This is hours before Jesus is to be arrested. And Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father am one. I think that's what Jesus then is saying in verse 37. For those who have eyes to see, for those who are willing to listen to the witnesses, to weigh the evidence, with eyes of faith they see the Father in Jesus as he exegetes or reveals the Father to them. Paul said to the Colossian believers that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. This morning, I can't prove this to you. You do have to take a step of faith based on the evidence. But what happens when you choose to believe that Jesus tells the truth is God meets you there, and he affirms in your heart that what you believe is true. The Bible says when you trust Jesus as Savior, you actually have the indwelling spirit of Jesus, the spirit of truth that lives in you and confirms to you that which is true. So, for example, if you were to ask me this morning, What's your number one reason why you believe this book is true? My answer would be, number one, because I have a personal relationship with the author. Now, would that convince the skeptic? Absolutely not. I'm not arguing with the skeptic. You're asking me, and I'm saying because... The spirit of truth dwells within me. Part of his role is to confirm in my heart what I believe is true. That's where we get our confidence. 
And that's in a sense what Jesus is saying. The disciples will uh, see the Father. They will accept the witness of the Father as it's manifested through the Son. The Pharisees will not, and that's what Jesus said. Why? Because they don't have the Word in them. They don't believe. Verse 38, you do not have His Word abiding in you. For you do not believe Him whom He sent. The fourth witness, starting in verse 39, then is the witness of the Scripture. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. When he's talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's all they had at this point. The Pharisees were passionate about the Old Testament. Matter of fact, they were far more passionate about the Old Testament than they were about the temple and the sacrificial system. You see this when you go to Jerusalem and you see people who have dedicated their entire lives to the study of the Old Testament Scriptures but miss the whole point. And that's what Jesus just said. The Old Testament Scriptures are the witness about me. There's kind of a movement in our culture today to diminish the importance of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is the story. It's not just the story of Israel. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. Verse 40, And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have Life, eternal life is not found in the Scriptures. It's found in the person revealed through the Scriptures. There's a significant difference between those two. It doesn't matter if you've memorized the whole Testament as some of these rabbis had. It doesn't matter if you can quote it in Hebrew or Latin. It doesn't matter if you can quote all the early church fathers. It doesn't matter if you can come across as the greatest scholar of the Old Testament of all time. If you don't get Jesus in the Old Testament, you don't get it at all. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. That word glory means like praise or reputation or fame. Jesus isn't upset because they aren't paying enough attention to him. The reason he tells them that is he's about to turn this around. That is the problem with religion. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. So they're full of scripture, they're full of religion, but they don't know God. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now what he's talking about is religion sets up this system. 
and other religious people come and they listen and they praise and they fuss over each other. And Jesus is saying, you listen to all that, but you won't listen to me who has come from the Father. And all this comes down to the core problem, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? This at its core is the problem with religion. Is religion is a mutual admiration society. So what Jesus is saying is religion sets up a system. Here's the rules. Here's the practices. Here's the, the beliefs. Here's everything that defines us. And then they step into the system they have created and congratulate themselves for their ability to perform within their system. And that's what he's saying. You're so busy glorifying one another in your religious system that you don't see Jesus. In other words, religion is not what leads people to God. Religion becomes a self-righteous, self-glorifying, mutual admiration system. And in the process of all that, people fail to have a relationship with Jesus. The rejection of witness number four would be those people that have heads full of knowledge, lots of religion, can quote lots of the Bible, could get a quiz right every time. They quote the church fathers. They quote all this stuff and come off as scholars who thoroughly understand all this, but they don't know Jesus. They've just missed the whole point. They think because everyone around them in the religious system is applauding them that they're on track. And that's the very noise that drowns out the voice of God. The last witness is the witness of Moses. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The fifth and final witness is the witness of Moses himself. The Pharisees, the first century religious leaders, revered Moses. They revered the Old Testament. They revered Moses. As a matter of fact, there's quite a bit of credible evidence that indicates by this time in the first century, they actually believed that Moses would intercede for them. And that's why Jesus is carefully selecting his words. At the end of the story, Jesus will not be their accuser, 
Moses will be your accuser. The very one upon whom you've set your hope. You think he's going to be your intercessor. He's going to be your accuser. Because what you've missed is the whole of the writings of Moses are about Jesus. This is a really clear statement at the end of verse 46 that everything about the Old Covenant, the writings of Moses, is about Jesus. The Old Covenant was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was meant to be a standard by which the people could measure themselves and understand their own sinfulness and their need for a Savior. The Savior then was pictured throughout the Old Covenant. It was pictured in the tabernacle. It was pictured in the, uh, Jesus was pictured in the tabernacle, in the temple, with the Ark of the Covenant, with the furniture in the temple, with the sacrificial system, with the Sabbath, with the feasts and festivals. Everything was a picture, a foreshadowing of the one who would come to be the Savior of the world. If the religious leaders thought that by strictly obeying the old covenant system, the writings of Moses, they could be saved. Jesus is saying that's the very system that will condemn you. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, actually calls the old covenant a ministry of death. He also calls it a ministry of condemnation. It was a tutor to lead us to our realization that we need a Savior. But no matter how thoroughly they thought they understood the Scriptures, if it doesn't lead them to Jesus, they have no hope. Verse 47, But if you do not believe his writings, How will you believe my words? Very interesting. What Jesus is saying at the end of this discourse is the very thing that you thought would lead you to God has become the barrier that prevents you from hearing the message of God. Five witnesses Presented, five witnesses rejected. Because these people were so deeply entrenched in the religion. And they weren't about to let Jesus interfere with that. I want to close by just rereading verse 24. That to me states the truth so clearly. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
Either that's true or it's not. Either Jesus tells the truth or he's a big liar. But what Jesus wants you to know is just because it's religion, don't think that that gets you to God. The only hope you have is through Jesus the Savior. Our Father, we're thankful this morning that you tell us the truth. In a world full of religion and religious confusion, Lord, open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts to see and accept Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.